Um, today's text comes from Nehemiah chapter 5. This will be the penultimate message in Nehemiah. Next Sunday, June 26th, we will conclude our journey into Nehemiah. I know there's like 13 chapters and we're in chapter 5 and we're going to wrap up, but um, I think it was front-loaded. So we, we are going to look at today's passage and then one more sermon on Nehemiah and then we'll finish that series. Um, I just want to always like to do a little brief recap just so that we are in the same mindset. Last week we looked at chapter 4 and about the opposition that Nehemiah and the people of Israel faced in rebuilding the wall. And I was just talking to people today and it's just amazing that when, when God is doing something in your life, when you're trying to do something for God or we're, we're moving forward to something, there always seems to be opposition or obstacles. That just happens to come our way. And last week we saw that the opposition that Nehemiah and the Israelites faced came in really all shapes and sizes. It came emotionally, it was psychological opposition, and it was physical threats of violence. So it was emotional, psychological, and physical opposition um, that they had to overcome to move forward in rebuilding the wall. In addition, we also saw that one of the obstacles that they had to overcome was the rubble, and that's our past. Sometimes, rather good or bad, things in the past become rubble. That what once was a wall now is rubble, and it becomes disruptive in, in our moving forward with God. Sometimes good things from the past are no longer good, and they become destructive, and they become rubble that wears us out, and then we feel like we can't do this. We don't, we're not... There's not enough of us. I'm not enough. I don't have the strength to carry on. And that's the kind of wariness that comes in from dealing with rubble. And we're going to um, continue in Nehemiah and look at ways that God uses Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. Without today's text, once again, is Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember... For my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we now ask that you will speak, us, speak to us through your word. Help us to see what generous grace that you pour upon us as we, are, as we see demonstrated by Nehemiah. And help us to have open hearts that your spirit may bless us uh, richly as you so long to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Les Mis fans, any Les Mis fans? Les Mis, yeah, okay. 
you have no idea when I say Les Mis what I'm talking about. Raise your hands here. Like, what? Okay. Les Miserables is one of these 1,400-page kind of epic novels that was written by Victor Hugo in 1862. This is when France was going through an upheaval. It's one of the most beloved novels, and it touches on a lot of really common human themes, so, so much so that 170 years later, people are still enthralled by the story. Well, I confess, I never read the novel. Uh, I've opened it, and I said, no, thank you. Um, it was really long. It's like War and Peace, kind of like a novel. So I would never know about Les Mis, just like some of you, had it not been for the musical. So there was this musical that came in about 30 years ago that was just wonderfully well done. And it's been a staple in Broadway and West End and London. It's just been, it's been a, a, a worldwide phenomenon. And in 2012, there was an adaptation into a movie, Hollywood movie, with all the big names like Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway. Oh, my God, I just blanked out, Anne Hathaway. Todd Hooper directed the movie, okay? So that's Les Mis. Now, the story of Les Mis is it resonates with people because the themes are so universally human. The protagonist of the story is a man named Jean Valjean who serves 19 years in hard labor in prison because he stole a loaf of bread to feed his sister's children. He was originally sentenced for five years, but he tried to escape multiple times. And so overall, he served 19 years for trying to feed his sister's children. He is a hardened man. He is a cynical man. He is a jaded man when he is finally released on, on parole. And as, as back in the days when you were on parole, you had to carry this thing called a yellow passport that identified you as a former convict. It stigmatized you. It ostracized you from society. And the story goes that Jean Valjean is now, as a parolee, trying to get work. And he's spurned. He's turned away. He's trying to find a place to sleep, to lodge. And everyone says, no room in the inn. Sort of like the nativity scene. No room for you. And Jean Valjean is huddled in, a, in cold, trying to get a nice sleep. And one night, he encounters... Monsignor Muriel, Bishop Muriel, who invites Jean Valjean into his home and says, there is food to strengthen you. There is wine to revive you. There is a bed for you to sleep in. We do not have much, but what we have, we want to share. And so Jean Valjean is invited into this bishop's home with grace and hospitality. He is fed he is treated like a human created in the image of God. And how does Jean Valjean repay the bishop's kindness? In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean wakes up and surreptitiously robs the bishop. He gets a sack, starts putting in all the silverware and the hardware, and he runs off with the bishop's goods. Well, not too long after that, he is caught by the police. They have been sort of keeping their eye on him, and he is beaten and brought back into the bishop's home with a sack, caught red-handed, robbing the bishop. And the police say, 
Monseigneur, here's a man who has robbed you. Just say the word and he will go back to prison where he belongs. The police tell Monseigneur that this man claims that he didn't steal these things, but rather that you gave it to him. And as Jean Valjean readies himself for the verdict of guilty, of being caught red-handed, of being sent back to what he probably considered living hell, the bishop grabs the two most precious things in the house, these silver candlesticks, and says, Oh, my dear friend, you left in such a rush last night that I, you, you forgot to take the most important thing that I gave you, these candlesticks. And he says to the police, yes, indeed, I have given this man all this that he has. And it is in that moment that Jean Valjean is redeemed and he transforms and he becomes a different person and he helps revive a city and help people. And that's sort of the opening minutes of the story. And it's a, it's a beautiful story. And I would, uh, if you, you may not be a fan of the musical, so there's actually a movie version with Liam Neeson also. But if you do want to watch it, it is on Netflix right now, the 2012 version of the musical movie, Les Mis. What is wonderful about that little story of Jean Valjean is that Jean Valjean is not reformed or transformed or changed by the harshness of the law. He is transformed by generous grace. We are people who are moved and touched by generosity. And in today's story, Nehemiah demonstrates that kind of generosity. Nehemiah models for us the kind of generosity that God wants to pour upon us. Nehemiah models the kind of generosity that Jesus Christ himself demonstrates when Philippians chapter 2 tells us that though being God, he did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but emptied himself and became a person. And he humbled himself to be a servant to die for us, though Christ being rich became poor, that we might become rich. Nehemiah demonstrates that kind of godly generosity. If you look at with me at the text, the story goes like this. And, and I just want to bring a little bit of historical context into this. In chapter 5, Nehemiah, remember, is writing a memoir. So he's probably writing from after everything has happened. So chapter 5 isn't really chronologically doesn't fit chronologically perfectly into the storyline because here you see him talking about 12 years that he was in Jerusalem. We know the wall was built in 52 days. So we know that he's sort of inserting this in as, as a part of a memoir to make a point. And, and part of the point is that the people of Israel were under duress. Remember, these were exiles that returned. They probably didn't have much. And they were trying to carve out a new life back in their homeland. And because they were under the, the reign of a foreign empire, the Persian Empire, the Persian Empire was set governors over these territories, these conquered areas. And these governors had the right to claim taxes for the empire. So the governors would claim taxes for the Persian Empire, and they had the right to claim taxes for themselves, a personal tax 
so that they could get money to buy land and to eat and to live comfortably, sort of the perks of the job while there were governors over these foreign territories. So if you look at verse 14, Nehemiah tells us, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. So once again, he's kind of reflecting back now. 12 years Nehemiah was governor. For 12 years, he had the right to collect taxes to support himself and his team and his crew. He says, For 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of, of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. And then he tells us, moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, and that what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine. Nehemiah had every right to collect taxes and live comfortably, but he doesn't because he knew the people that he was trying to serve, the people he was rallying, the people he was rebuilding the wall with. They were under heavy burdens. And he looked at the burdens, and he had a right to collect them, but he said, I don't want to add to their burden, therefore I'm going to forgo my right. And in a spirit of generosity, out of his own expense, he supports the people that he's called to serve. Generosity. We are wired by God to be wooed by generosity. Now, what I want to do is, just real briefly, I want to look at three qualities of, of Nehemiah's generosity. There, there are certain traits. Generosity is wonderful, but the kind of generosity Nehemiah demonstrates is particular and is rooted in, in his faith in God. And there are three elements of generosity, uh, three qualities of Nehemiah's gener generosity that I just want to quickly point out. The first is that Nehemiah's generosity was countercultural. Countercultural. You know, there's a you know there's the kind of generosity where it's a trendy kind of generosity where everyone's doing something and so you kind of do it. You know, I, I not not to besmirch or belittle these movements. I think they're wonderful. They do. You know, sometimes you have to be careful when using an illustration. I, I don't want to belittle anything. I still remember when we were doing. Um, do you guys remember the ice bucket challenge, the water, whatever the challenge was? and then donating online and so forth. You know, there, there's these trendy ways of giving that are very visible, and they're good. I think all generosity is good in some ways. Nehemiah's generosity was countercultural. His went against the grain. There was probably no other governors in his time and era who, forgot, who forwent their right to the tax in order to be generous. There's a kind of generosity. God's kind of generosity is often countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It goes against our best interests. The world teaches us that you can be generous as long as you don't do it to the point where you are harmed, where you don't let go of your own entitlements. We live in the world of entitlements. The kind of generosity that Nehemiah demonstrates is he forgoes his own sense of entitlement to what? To bless 
and serve the people. It's a countercultural kind of generosity. The second thing about um, Nehemiah is that he, he forgoes his own personal privilege. It's not only countercultural, it's countercultural specifically in that he is forgoing his rights. This is a kind of generosity, I believe, that wins people and that reflects God's goodness. It's a kind of generosity I mentioned that Jesus displayed himself. That though being God, he emptied himself and became human and died on a cross for us, right? It's a kind of generosity that says, I don't have to hold on to every right that I have. I can give up some of my privileges so that others can be less burdened. And finally, the quality of generosity that Nehemiah demonstrates is that his generosity was for the sake of others. Was for the sake of others, not for himself. There's a kind of generosity that can feel manipulative. There's a kind of generosity that is more of an investment, give-to-get kind of a mindset. There's a kind of generosity that keeps tabs You ever go out for lunch with someone and you were just going to pay your share and when the tap comes, when the bill comes, they say, hey, don't worry, I got it. You're like, oh, that's so generous of you, that's so kind. But the next time you go out to lunch and the check comes in, they're, they're looking at you and you're like, you know what's expected, right? They want, they want you to pick up the tab this time. I'm not saying that everyone's like that. There's a kind of generosity that keeps tab. There's a kind of generosity that almost feels like quid pro quo, that you're investing in to get something out of it. Nehemiah's generosity wasn't like that. Nehemiah's generosity was rooted for the sake of others. Look at the very last verse of today's passage, verse 19. He says, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And then it says in verse 15, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. And then he says, um, yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. He realized that it was burned. He wanted to Unburden. He wanted to make the burden less. He did it for the sake of others. And the only way that you can be this generous is if you have the mindset that Nehemiah has. Because there's, Nehemiah wants something when he gives. He does want something. It's not all altruism. What does he want, though, that allows him to be generous? He wants God's recognition. He understands that all things come from God. And through God, he is a channel of blessing. And so what does he pray at the end? He just says, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for those people. When you are content knowing that God knows and that God remembers, then we can be generous without keeping tabs. We can be generous without being manipulative. We can be generous without expecting back. And we can be generous for the sake of others. This is the kind of generosity that Nehemiah demonstrated to win the people of Israel. 
this is the kind of generosity that makes people attracted to the gospel. Because at the end of the day, God does not just give you mercy and grace. He gives you mercy and grace and generous abundance. It's not the prodigal son barely getting back to the home through the back door. It is the father throwing a feast and a celebration for a wayward son that comes. So I want to end this message with what are some ways that we are called to be generous? You know, I've been talking to you about what are some traits that we want to be known by here at THMCEM? What are some of the ways in which we want to be known by here at THMCEM? E-M. One, we got to get a name. THMCEM. It's like six letters. <laughs> um, and I can't even, you can't, you know, sometimes acronyms, you can just sound it out like, but THMCEM is very hard to like even, even pronounce like Tumsum, Tumsum, Tumsum. We call it ourselves Tumsum. Um, I digress. Uh, you know, what are some of the ways that we want to know by? One of the ways I would love to be known by is that this church is very welcoming. It is not a judging church. All right. It is not a judging church. It is an intentional church. I also want to be known as a generous church. If, if there was something about our group that I, would, that I would want people to say about us is that we are a generous church. So what are some ways that I challenge you to be generous this week? What are some ways that I challenge you to be generous in your life? First, gener- be generous with your attitudes. Have you ever met someone who just looks at you and they just doubt you and they just expect the worst out of you? It's not fun being around people like that. Be generous in your attitude. Give benefit of the doubt. Be big-minded. Brian Stevenson, who is one of my modern-day heroes in the work that he does, and his book, Just Mercy, I read decades ago, has just really kind of helped me learn, and and there's so much about him. He gave one of the best TED Talks. Um, He said, we are more... We as people are more than our worst mistakes. Sometimes we are defined by our worst mistakes, and we're more than that. And, and that starts with a generous attitude, right? I know I'm not perfect, you know? But if, if I, I would want you to have a generous attitude towards me, and I want to have a generous attitude towards you. Can we be a people that has a generous attitude toward one another and toward those who we encounter Secondly, let's be generous with our words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. There was no untrue saying in the world. Sticks and stones may break your bones and your bones will heal, but words sometimes cause scars that never heal. Children who grow up under a a word said by their parent in a moment of anger and harshness that leaves a permanent scar and damage for years and decades. Or words we say to our friends in a moment of weariness or just words are, are so powerful in both to build up and to tear down. Let's be generous with our words. The Bible encourages us. We can joke around. I know we live in a culture of put-downs. and But sometimes it can, it can have effect that we don't want to have. So let's be generous with our words. Let's not hold back praise and encouragement. If you see someone doing something well, let's not 
be stingy with our compliments and our praises. I always feel like we can be generous with our attitudes and our words. And lastly, let's be generous with our time, perhaps our most precious commodity. There's no commodity in life that is more precious than our time. And there's no more, no more uh, gracious way to be generous with something than our time, right? We're only given 24 hours each and every day. There's a book called 4,000 Weeks, and there's a subtitle. And I was thinking like 4,000 Weeks. You know what 4,000 Weeks is? That's an average lifetime. You know, 52 weeks times, say, 80 years. 4,000 weeks. Yeah, 4,000 weeks. You know, some people hear 4,000 weeks, like, that's a lot of time. I'm like, 4,000 weeks, that's all we got? Oh, my God, how many do I have left? How many are like, I got like 1,200 weeks left at best. I mean, that just seems so little. Every week goes by so fast. The most precious commodity we have is time. And I want to encourage us, let's be generous with our time. Be generous to God with your time. If spending an hour, it's not even an hour, 15 minutes at church seems wasteful to you, I encourage you, be generous to God with your time. Be generous in volunteering. Be generous in serving. Be generous in time, for God is generous with you. And that's what the gospel ultimately is. It is a display of God's generosity towards us who don't necessarily deserve it all the time. It's God's overflowing generosity. And I pray that as it, dem- as it marked in EMS life, I pray that it will be a mark of THMC EM. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your generous outpouring of your spirit, generous grace, generous mercy, generous blessings in our life in so many ways. So I pray that you will make us like Nehemiah, be willing to give at our own expense, to give of ourselves, our words, our attitudes, our time, to be a generous people that we may reflect you. In Christ's name we pray.